Hey all, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. And although you can't tour the museum during this time of health caution, you can always visit online. Sit down with your family and go to KOFC Museum on the web or social media channels to enjoy a journey through history, art, and faith. So here we go. I'm happy as always to be sitting across from Bishop Frank Caggiano. It's, it's good to be with you. We're six feet apart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and thanks for coming in. The office building is empty, as is. you would expect. You know, and for good reason, coronavirus it keeps dominating all the headlines, mm -hmm. all the conversations. It's hard to keep up. You know, we've been taping a few days in advance, and it feels like in between the time that we chat and the time that we air, the ground keeps shifting. Yeah, the world is changing, and we have to revisit items, practices, religious traditions that we've always taken for granted. But now we need to adapt or move or rethink. You're right, the world has changed dramatically. And quite frankly, I'm not exactly sure how it will not in some sense be changed permanently because of what has happened. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a global crisis that hits straight to the heart of our local communities, our families and our parishes that, you know, um, you've and our church. Yes. And our church. And all that we value and all that we do. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. Perhaps another way to say that is familiarity breeds a sense of taking a good, a value, a blessing for granted. And now that we're in the position where there are many people who, because they've fallen ill, cannot have their confessions heard, cannot receive the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, cannot even be anointed. It is a terrible position to be in. And prior to this crisis, every single one of us had the opportunity to go to confession in their parish, probably at the asking. And we know that that practice had dim has diminished dramatically in the church. So my sense is, as we move forward, perhaps this fast is something that will help us to reignite a real genuine personal love for all of these gifts that God has given us, that one day we'll come back. This, this virus, this pandemic will pass over time. And we're praying that it, that be short and that people be kept safe, but it will pass. But in the interim period, in my own prayer, it's almost as if we're back in the desert in Sinai. We want to get to the promised land. Promised land is back to where we can come together, pray Sunday Mass. We can go to confession at whenever we can. We can celebrate the sacraments. We could come together in social events. That is almost like the promised land now. But we're in the desert. So we need to make sure we keep our eyes on where we need to go. And we follow Moses along the way as to what he's asking of us to do, to make sure we can get there safely. But it is, um, it's a time for me, um, as I said before we got on the air, it's, it's, I'm imagining to have to make decisions and examining things that I never imagined in my life I would need to do, such as what do we do for Palm Sunday and the distribution of palms? 
what do we do with the Italian tradition of visiting our dead relatives in the cemetery and laying palms on those graves as a sign of our communion? or the washing of the feet of Holy Thursday, or the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday, or the veneration of the wood by kissing it. Yeah. Or the first sacraments for the elect on Easter Vigil, or the blessing of Easter water. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, these, this is the, these are the great mysteries of our faith. So we're in the desert, and we will need to learn from being in the desert what the Lord intends. And I'm not quite certain what all of that is, but... So you're right, it keeps evolving. And every week, as you look to the next week, it's we have Divine Mercy Sunday coming. We have Easter itself coming. Will we be able to celebrate Mass together? So those are the things that I think are in everyone's mind. Yeah, it occurs to me that uh, this time is probably, I mean, to, to, to find a silver lining, the fast from communion and Mass and confession it's really uh, reigniting a desire in people, right? Um, boy, I really should have taken advantage of that stuff, or I really appreciate it now, and right. I right. can't wait to get back to right. it. Right. But a suggestion. One of the great gifts we have at times neglected or taken for granted is what the church has always called the domestic church, which is our families. Our families are the bedrock of the church because presumably families come together on Sunday to worship together. So perhaps part of the reason that in this fast, part of the way we could draw some blessing out of it is to use these weeks to focus on the domestic church. So what is it that now that we're all in this house together again, so we are all under one roof, right? What, what can we do spiritually to strengthen our life together, to pray together, offer, offer blessings together, rosary together? Stations of the Cross can be prayed at home together. And all of that is online. So even if you don't have the books, it's really irrelevant. Could there be a hidden blessing that our families could be strengthened during this time simply because for the first time in a long time, many families are under the same roof again? Yeah, it's true for us. It is. And, uh, you know, we, we've been reading the Daily Gospel together. Tremendous. And then, um, you know, we used to do the rosary together as a family when we could, but now it's every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. Even homeschooling has been, um, it's been an experience and a struggle, but it's been really, I love the fact that I've been sitting down with, with my kids for a couple hours every day and going through stuff. And it's been awesome. And then even I've, I've been going outside with my, with my boys and I'm still young enough to beat them in basketball, so that's been fun. <laughs> Another point, too. This crossed my mind as I was driving up here to the Catholic Center, uh, alone on the merit. <laughs> uh, we have been speaking as a church for 50 years since St. Paul VI in Evangelii Nunciandi, where he says... There can be no evangelization without the preaching of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about evangelization as this impulse to go out with good news, bring that good news into the world. And how reluctant we are to do that because we're kind of comfortable in our space, comfortable in our pew, comfortable in our church, comfortable with our routine, comfortable with the way we have done things. And now finally, we are not in that. 
So again, we're in the desert. And the Lord is saying, use this time to learn something new about how you can serve me, worship me, honor me, evangelize my name to the world. And technology is proving to be one great tool where we could literally reach into someone's home. Yeah. And speak about the good news and all that we believe in. So again, we'll go back, please God, to all that we for a short time cannot celebrate together. But maybe we'll bring more back with us that can enrich what we're doing. Yeah. And there are all kinds of resources, like you said. My wife uh, just got, she forwarded me an email from Magnificat. Mm-hmm. They're offering their stuff online for free. Mm-hmm. They've got a, a division called Magnificids where mm-hmm. you can find activities for your kids. And formed is also. Yes, All beautiful. the materials free and through the USCCB, it's available to everyone in the country. Yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. And there's Veritas Catholic Radio, right? Uh, the best. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think we can continue to talk about the details and that's important. But I do think as a vision of hope that we need to kind of keep our, our eyes fixed on the goal the goal is eternal life. Yes. And therefore, in this period of time when we're in the desert, the goal hasn't changed, right? It hasn't. And we will come out of this, please God, more eager for that which we had before, better instructed on that which is new, to move forward in faith. Yeah. I'm just uh, taking note that you said Veritas Catholic Radio was the best of the resources, so I'm just writing that down. Oh, please. please, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh I, I just want to kind of shift tracks a little bit because the last, <clears throat> the last really national mm-hmm. crisis mm-hmm. that I remember was 9-11. We've had other tragedies like Katrina and Sandy, California wildfires, and those are horrible regional mm-hmm. um, events. But 9-11 really kind of brought this unifying spirit Mm-hmm. to the United States, and everybody felt like we were going through it together. Yeah, it, it changed my life. When 9-11 happened, I was pastor of St. Dominic's in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. In fact, you could see the World Trade Center yeah. from the, the corner where the rectory was. And um, when it was attacked, I had no idea what was going on. And I left the daily mass, of which I was the celebrant, with Holy Communion for someone who was who was homebound. And as I entered, one of the individuals there was watching TV. I didn't make much of it. And after I had administered Holy Communion, came out, and they had it moved, not an iota. And I'm thinking, so this is odd. Mm-hmm. And then I glimpsed what she was watching. I was just shocked, shocked at what I saw. So I immediately rushed back to the rectory. And then the saga began, the unfolding began. But there was a moment in the afternoon that is impressed in my mind that in some ways I even so echoed today. It was about three o'clock. So the church we left open, the Blessed Sacrament was out for, for exposition. People were coming in as the towers collapsed. But when I left the rectory, just for some air, just to kind of ground myself into what was going on, my head was spinning. Yeah. It then struck me. And what it was, was nothing 
Nothing. I was standing on the corner of 75th and 20th Avenue. There was not a car moving. There was no buses. There was not a sound. There was not a person. Nothing. I had never in my life experienced silence in the midst of the city as I did then. And I experienced a profound sense of God's presence, almost saying to me in my heart, now you can hear me. I've been here all along. And there were images of people walking over the Brooklyn Bridge, covered in soot. Yeah, I remember. And what happened? People discovered their, their faith. Our mass attendance nearly doubled for weeks after that. In part because of Thanksgiving for those who, who survived and for those who died to continue to pray because the funerals were excruciatingly long in the planning as they tried to identify the remains. It was just awful for families. One family waited two and a half months. It was just torturous. So I celebrated, I don't recall, 13, 14 funerals of parishioners who died. And I was hoping in my heart of hearts that out of this tremendous evil, which really was an obvious enemy, but it was a hidden enemy because there was always whispers and fears that there would be more terrorist attacks and where would they come from and who would they be and how would it happen? It would be the subways or would it be somewhere else or Grand Central Station, whatever else. So everyone looked at that situation as a, as a call to seek refuge in God. And I was hoping that that would be one of the evangelical turning points. But we all know, within three or four months, the fervor died, the enemy disappeared, supposedly, or was not as prevalent in one's thinking, and people kind of slowly returned to their way of life before. Right. And I remember many a time coming to that same corner, and I would say to the Lord, but they can't hear you now. Yeah. Right? And many times I'm guilty of that too. So in this case, coming up the merit, I'm the only car I can see. There's a quiet there. I rolled my windows down and there was a quiet. You know, the car hums in a usual way. And there's the wind that blows through the windows. There's a stillness there that again, God speaks, I'm here. I understand you're afraid, but I'm here because I have walked this path before you and for you. So I think there are tremendous parallels in my mind about how we can deal with this and perhaps when the crisis subsides, not to repeat the same mistake we did nearly 18, 19 years ago. Because if the Lord is asking us now to be his refuge and to come to him with our needs and our hopes and our tears and our cries and our anguish and our fear and our anxiety and all the rest, if we're going to storm heaven with all of our pleas, he will welcome them all. He will embrace them all. But what we should not do six months from now is ignore him again. Yeah, I, I, I think I, we're in agreement that 
there's probably going to be a a, ba- a rush back into the churches and the sacraments, a, an almost a relief. Once we can come back. Once we can come back, but then sustaining it. Yeah, and, and I think perhaps the church has a responsibility here too, is that when I look back on being a pastor, one of the mistakes I made was to assume that the fervor would last simply because the people would take care of that. Well, no. No, when I look back, it was I, I myself was guilty in part of taking it for granted that this would remain. Because as a spiritual father, you need to be able to feed people so that just like a fire will go out if you don't put wood on it or kindling, well, the same thing with the spiritual fire of the presence of grace and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have to do the same thing. So perhaps this second crisis in my lifetime on a communal, in this case, a global scale. Maybe this time in the desert should be a time when you and I and our listeners ask, well, what is it then, as a lifelong lesson, I'm going to bring into back, back into normalcy that will allow that fire to keep going? That's something all of us need to think through. And right now, you and the pastors, the priests, every, all the nurses and doctors, everyone's focused on fighting today. But, you know, what can we be thinking about for when things return back to normal? Gratitude. Mm-hmm. Gratitude. Today, there are sanitation workers picking up our garbage who are not self-quarantining because it's considered an essential work. Because if that garbage piles up, it will become a huge health hazard in the midst of another health hazard. So they're putting their lives on the line. How many times have we said thank you to them? Right. Transit workers in the city. There's 30 some odd who have tested positive that were announced just today by the MTA. And the president of the MTA said, our people are committed to make sure people can travel to where they need to go. They're the unsung heroes. What was the last time we said thank you to them? Or even if, or even noticed them. Yeah. The people restocking the shelves in the grocery store. Exactly. The, the person who's at the checkout counter yeah. is an essential worker because without that person risking his or her life, literally, in some sense, even with the protection that they can do so that you could have food, you would starve. Well, in normal times, who even gives a second glance? Who looks the person in the face when they're checking out? and not be lost in this mystical world we've created in our own minds about phones and messages and texts. Oh, for the love of the Lord, stop already. <laughs> and uh, not to rile you up, Your Excellency, but, and spring break. Oh! Oh, if I were the governor of Florida, I would order them off the beach and give them 24 hours to get off that beach because it is an insult to everyone I just described who is in harm's way. Yeah. You know, let's be frank, shall we? <laughs> For those of us who are older, and I consider myself in this category, perhaps we have created a society that is instilled in our young people this idea of being very much self absorbed. Perhaps the greater guilt lies in us that we've created a consumer, materialistic, secularist environment that says the only thing that matters is me. So I'm the criteria of truth, I'm the criteria of morality, I'm, con- I'm the criteria of good judgment. So there's 
enough guilt for all of us to really examine. But I am hopeful that most of the young people I have met, there is a genuine, innate, natural goodness to them. And we as leaders in this country need to ask them to step it up. The sad truth is, there is evidence coming out in the last few days that a disproportionate amount of young people are now going into intensive care in this country because their youth may not prevent them from contracting the disease, it may only delay them from having the disease, which means their interaction can actually be a greater danger of contagion, precisely because they can be asymptomatic for much longer. I believe if someone addressed them directly and explained to them the grave moment we're living in, not everyone, but a good number of young people would respond. This is the moment for us to take off the mask of the lie of the society we have all in part created, that my life is all about me. This is the moment where my life is about protecting you first. Right? Yes. And I think they will rise to it, not everyone, and the ones who don't have to be forced to. But I think the vast majority, this could be a moment of tremendous evangelical conversion for lots of people, especially our young people. Yeah. It could. We were talking about the domestic church. I mean, it, it could start with those parents who bought the plane tickets and let their kids go down there. <laughs> oh, I, I, what were they thinking? My goodness. And God forbid they fall ill and they're quarantined. You're going to be separated from them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I don't have children, obviously, but if I had, I couldn't imagine doing that. Just out of fear. But that being said, they need to step up as young people. And the task force on the Coronavirus National Task Force, the ambassador, a a physician whose name I do not recall at this point, that is her constant theme over the last few days. Mm -hmm. She says to the millennials and young adults, you are the future of our country, you're the backbone of what we will become, but we need your help now. More than ever, we need it now. And I believe young people will respond. Yeah. And there are, like you said, there are so many good right-minded young people. Oh. We see them here in our diocese. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, when you go on television or, you know, on the web and they interview those one or two that are already drunk, it's noontime. Right. Well, no, it's it's all exaggerated. They they don't represent young people. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. They don't. Right. But these good young people that we know, uh, they need to exercise their courage, step up, hold your peers accountable. Exactly. And we have lots of young people since we first started taping and discussing this that are now at the front lines of our soup kitchens and helping out so that older people do not have to do that ministry in our own diocese. Yeah. Okay. So I would love for the media to put voice to what they're doing as a counterpoint because young people can and will step up, but we need to be firm in the ask. True. True. I hate to cut this off, but um, we need to go to a break. Please. So death, division, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. We're still suffering the consequences. When we come back from the break, we will dive into the topic of sin. 
Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Hey all, and we are back on Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So we were talking, uh, Excellency, about what's happening in the world today. Mm-hmm. And um, this segment, I wanted to talk about sin. So A lighthearted subject. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Something light for, you know, to, to let everybody laugh a little bit. No, but um, in all seriousness, though, what what's happening out there today mm-hmm. That's a byproduct of our fallen nature, but is it a direct result of our sin? Can we look at it that way? Or, or okay, so we have to back up for a second. Okay, we have to ask ourselves a, a more basic question: What is sin? Yes, let's right? start there. So there are many ways to define it. The way I understand it, in uh, in co- more colloquial terms, is that sin is an act of disobedience against that which we know the Lord has asked of us to do. It's a sin against the truth because every act of sin is in some ways a falsity. The root of all sin is the one primordial or original sin committed by Adam and Eve, which if you recall in Genesis is really the the sin of pride is to try to dare to reach and displace God as the center of all things. The image in the story is the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the source of good and that which can differentiate good and evil is God because truth and goodness are objective in him. He is the truth. He is the good. So if you think you can do better than God, you're going to kick him out of the way and put yourself there. That's what Adam and Eve did. And almost all sin is that. It's lying to oneself, lying to one's neighbor, certainly lying to God by claiming, doing, acting in some way that's harmful to my relationship with him, my relationship with my neighbor, my relationship with myself. So there are natural, there have been consequences to original sin. All of us, forgiven original sin in baptism, still struggle with concupiscence, okay? That, that, that tendency to, uh, again, in colloquial terms, to be self-absorbed. We still have those effects. We have that tendency to do that. Um, and nature is fallen. So the scripture says God had originally intended the creation of humanity as his image and likeness to live in paradise, to live in peaceful life, whole life, healthy life, holy life. And that fell, we fell from that. So the vestiges of that fall are all around us. Disease is one of that. Disease is one of that. So in some sense, if man had not fallen, we would not be facing any disease in our life. Not because we're personally guilty, but because it's the remnants of what has happened out of our control, but it's still part of who we are. Right. 
So that so that's where we're at right now in so much as every single one of us capable of sin falls into sin. And Lent is designed to be the spiritual mirror to attune us to where we can see the sinfulness of our life and where with grace we will begin to glimpse that which we have been blind to as sinful in our life and to seek conversion from it. So for example, we seek fasting and almsgiving in part to do works of charity, to offer goods, resources. But it can also be an examination of conscience. We who strive, please God, to be good people, I hope, I pray, are going to be guilty more of omission than commission. Mm -hmm. So I look at my life and say to myself, well, I am doing this extra work, extra sacrifice, to be charitable. But what about the other 320 days of the year, plus or minus? Well, what, what, what opportunities did I lose in my life to be charitable or to, to reach out effectively to be of help to someone else? So even those disciplines are really meant to try to bring us back to the, the, the heart of why Lent exists, which is conversion, metanoia, to change one's face. Sin has become a bad word because when you go on television, no one talks about sin. They talk about you, you need a personal counselor, you need an advisor, you need a spiritual guru, you need a philosopher of life. No, you don't. That's all fine, wonderful. That's, I have no problems with any of that. But you need a good confession is what we need. <laughs> we need to admit our sin and ask the Lord for his forgiveness. That's the root of our real transformation in Christ. So then if you don't have that, besides the obvious uh, end point after death, what, I mean, what are kind of, what are some of the, what does living a life of unrepented sin? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Let me answer your question with a question. S Steve, Frank. George, Harriet, whomever, what do you really desire? What do you really want? The truth is, we all struggle with disordered desires. The one desire, the holy desire, the foundation of hope and the root of conversion is to desire to love God above all things and my neighbor as myself, for to love God requires that I love my neighbor. If I truly desire that, then things like power, privilege, pleasure, find their rightful place in our lives. It's simplistic and naive, for example, to think that money is, is something that a Christian should not use, obtain, or even seek more of. Because money in and of itself is not evil. It's what you do with it and what you did to get it. That could be sinful. But in and of itself, it's a tool that society's created which can do tremendous good. But if I desire Christ above all things, chances are my desire 
to pursue it and use it will be ordered correctly. If it becomes my key desire, then you could see a life. So to answer your question now, what does a life look like? One that's distracted, one that's never happy, one that's never content, one that's totally unsettled, even when blessings are before you or I, even when we can see the fruits of our labor, even when we are abundantly blessed, we seek more because in the end, if we don't seek Christ, we can seek everything else and it will make no difference. And I see some of that in the very fiber of our society because our, our, the, our society wants us always to be longing for more, consumer goods, wealth, pleasure, beauty, physical, whatever it is, pleasure in all its forms because that's how we generate more consumption. And the Lord would say, am I not enough for you? Yeah. And I will give you all that you need. So that's what it looks like. You know, we say in Italian, un'ansia, c'è una ansia. There's an anxiety, there's a restlessness that is not a holy restlessness. And I see, I sometimes even in my own life, I certainly see it all around me. Yeah, our hearts are restless. Until they rest with? Thee. Not money, not possessions, not property, not privilege. With thee. Yes. And then, Lord, I will need everything I need. Right. Exactly. So sin is a lie, because sin will say, like the serpent, only if you had the next car, or, the, or that much money, or that position, or if you looked that beautiful, or had that waistline, you would have everything. No, you wouldn't. Right. If you don't have Christ, in the end, wh- wh- who cares what your waistline right. is? <laughs> and because what's next? What's after that car? Right. Exactly. If that's the lie. Yeah. Right. So when we sin... We're sinning, sinning against God. You're also talking about us sinning against each other. Correct. And, and we're also very much sinning against the body of Christ, which is the church Correct. as a whole. How, how is it, how is it you know, uh, that our, our personal sin affects the body of Christ in oh, the church? Oh, that's a great question. What's the next question? No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, Allow me to use an image. I learned this a while back, although I, I must confess, I don't remember where I learned it, but I was told and have subsequently heard it said other, in other situations that if you take a stone and throw it into a pond, you, it will create a ripple on the surface. And, and I was a kid, a few times I was able to do that, It's like a beautiful thing to see, isn't it? Yes. Here in Connecticut, we have lots of ponds. And, you know, you could just kind of like get mesmerized, throw it and you see the wave and just... What I did not know, though, scientifically, every molecule in that pond changes because of that one stone. It all moves. Hmm. So go back to your question then. Sin is always personal, never private. Because what I do either will have detriment or cheapen my life, your life, or both of our lives. So if if my sin cheapens the community around me, then I have harmed them in such a way that I have taken either a blessing away 
or I've made it harder for them to live the blessed life God wants them to live. And if I were to say, well, I'm doing this in the quiet of my house, nobody will ever know it, what's the big deal? If I'm cheapening myself, then the gift of myself in offering to you is now cheaper than it was yesterday. It's less than it was a week ago. Once again, I'm affecting your life. So there is no possibility of sinning in a totally private way. And oftentimes we don't consider that. And that's part of the reason why there is um, a penance. A penance arose in auricular confession in part because it is almost virtually impossible for us in our human life to be able to undo the damage that we did. I'll tell you a story. Okay, Mama told me the story. Um, when she was a little girl in Cajano, one of the priests gave this homily that was probably very poorly received, but he gave this homily about gossip, which in a village of 2,800 people, it was the pastime. <laughs> okay, that's no different than now. All right, it's gossip. And he likened it to a person who had a sack filled with feathers and in the midst of the entire town, released the feathers and asked the people to gather the feathers and put them all back into the bag. And of course, besides bedlam, the answer is it's impossible because they're flying all over. Right. And he said, and that's your words. They take a life of their own and they continue to hurt because a reputation is not just immediately hurt, but it can be tarnished for a long time because of the lie that you speak or speaking the truth to those who do not need to know the truth. There's no right to it. So when you consider in those terms, not only are our sins never private, but the damage can be long lasting and therefore we as penitents can be truly sorry, but we can't undo all of that damage. Mm. And so part of the reason we have penance is to pray in part on behalf of those we have hurt that we cannot on our own undo, but God could and will in the fullness of the kingdom. And that's why there's a temporal punishment attached to that too, because we still in justice need to make up for that which we did. The penance. Absolutely. I remember... This is uh, probably almost, almost 20 years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I was in Bethesda and I went to confession. And to me, it feels like penances are never overly burdensome. Mm -hmm. And I went into confession and I asked the priest specifically, I said, Father, please give me a hard penance. He said, you want a hard penance? I said, yes, Father. He said, don't eat for the next month. And I was silent. He said, just kidding. Go to Mass every day this week. <laughs> but <laughs> Oh my gosh, I could not do the first. <laughs> <laughs> but is there, a, uh, is there a reason why penances are, like you said, they're uh, reparative, but they're not burdensome? Well, they, they need to be achievable. Because there is, in justice, a demand that a person can bring this process to a spiritual conclusion and be assured that the pardon they were given is, is truly theirs. And that becomes actually problematic for people who are scrupulous. Mm. 
because they are tormented with whether or not they've done their penance correctly, done it enough, done it with the right intention, and so they always wonder whether or not they have been truly forgiven, which is very sad in my mind, because it's almost trying to judge and see God in our terms, but God is far greater, His mercy is far greater, His love is far greater. But leaving that aside, for us, a penance has to be reasonable, has to be achievable, and should not necessarily be easy because it, it's also meant to be reflective of everything we're talking about. So it's really up to the confessor to discern that. Now, the difficulty is for the average confessor who may not know the person to whom he is speaking, it's very hard to judge that criteria, not knowing who the person is. It occurs to me also that with like the scrupulous person you you, mm-hmm. you brought up, that you almost um, you want to stay away from any sort of uh, Pelagian you know implications, right? It's not up to you. Correct. It's God's grace that's Correct. that's Correct. bridging the gap. You know, when I was a little boy, a priest threw me out of confession. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh yeah. It all happened in my life. When the movie comes out, it's all going to be in the movie. <laughs> yeah, he threw me out. I uh, I went to confession with the class on Friday. And as a little boy, I would go every Saturday to confession. So I went on Saturday and he said, what sins have you committed? So I hesitated a bit. He said, you don't have any sins. He said, get out. Because in fact, he had heard my confession the day before. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> And I looked at him. <laughs> he said, you have nothing to say. He said, go, 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 go. I was horrified, <laughs> horrified. But the truth is, I, I was struggling to figure out what to say. It was less than 24 hours. When I look back, there was certainly a better pastoral way to approach it than the way he did. Right. Because he really traumatized me. <laughs> but, but, but I was scrupulous when I was a little boy. And I've grown out of it. By the time I was a teenager, I began to grow out of it to that point because I didn't understand that as a little boy, it didn't depend on me alone. Yeah. One of my favorite stories of confession, and I don't know if it's true or not, but a little boy in Paris stopped into Notre Dame Cathedral to go into confession. Uh, He's Jewish. And so he and his Jewish friends were actually trying to uh, make fun of the, the sacrament. So he goes into confession and he starts talking to the priest and he walked out converted and grew up to become Cardinal Lustiger. Is that right? So I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I hope it's not. I love that story. Oh, yeah. That's the power of the sacrament. <laughs> yes. That's what, going back to the situation we're in now, why it's so hard for so many people to be denied the sacraments. This true grace yes. that comes from it. Right. Uh, just quickly, I, I'm just remembering a, a question that my son asked me, which I didn't know the answer to, mm-hmm. which happens a lot. Um, but I he, hope I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> he and his friends at prep were uh, discussing uh, whether there are different levels of mortal sin. I told him, you know, as far as I know, mortal sin is mortal sin. It's all the same. But he, but some of his friends kind of felt like, well, some mortal sins are more mortal than others. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, I, I honestly have never heard that. Mm-hmm. Because mortal sin, by definition, crosses the line where your relationship with God is ruptured. So whether there are degrees of that, 
I think it's somewhat of an absolute state of life that I've cut God off out of my life. Could there be degrees of that? Perhaps, but mortal sin is a big deal, regardless. Yeah. That's a line you do not cross. Yeah. Truth, any line of sin you should not cross, but mortal sin in particular yeah. is something you should fear, which I think has is not as much in our modern world, unfortunately, because we rationalize. You've heard me say this before, Steve. Religious people are experts in rationalizing. And it is unfortunate because we kid ourselves into believing that which in the end, not only is it untrue, but it is harmful to us. A little knowledge can do a lot of damage. <laughs> so my response to them would simply see, be, that's like being lost in the forest, not knowing your way, and can you keep getting lost in the forest? Presumably, perhaps, but the point is, you don't wanna be lost in the forest. Beyond that, these are questions we need never have to ask. Yes. Right? Yep. Jesus said in, in John's gospel, we're all slaves to sin. We just got to try and break the chains or through God's grace. Correct. Have those chains broken. Right. And there are, if I may, <clears throat> there, are some intrins- there are some acts that are intrinsically evil, that are, more, that, that are sinful, period, regardless of the circumstances and the intent. And the church is very clear on what some of that is. So... A lot of this is for the learning and living. Unfortunately, we live in a time where we think we can redesign this or we don't need to. That's the great beauty of the deposit of our Catholic tradition and our faith. It's there. Unfortunately, many people don't care to know it and care to live differently. Yeah. And to try and separate out, the more we talk this through, to try and separate out, well, this sin is more mortal than another. That's almost trying to become legalistic, pharisaical about things. Um, and I would say this. What's essentially problematic with that is a mortal sin most often involves an intrinsically evil act to begin with. Right. So if it's intrinsically evil and breaks your relationship with God, that is sufficient to run. That's all you need to know. Yep. Right. Yep. Don't even mess around. Mm-hmm. And how about venial sins? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've heard priests say that venial sins are forgiven when we receive communion. We should still confess those. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, venial sins, can we can seek their forgiveness in a number of ways. But for, for us who are being asked on a regular basis to go to confession— for us to grow in true holiness, we need to bring to the confessional venial sins and mortal sins. And I would even add the attitudes of our lives that make us predisposed to sin at all. Because in many ways, the way we interact with life, society, the people around us, they are in many ways the harbinger of what's going to cause us to act in certain ways. So, I may be prejudiced. I may be a racist. I may not today have done any act or said any word that says that that is a racist act or word to say, but I am racist. And the attitude itself then is orienting me towards sin, in which case it itself needs to be rooted out. 
You don't have to affect it for it to be sinful in, in, in its predisposition. So, so we have many ways, it's almost like layers, to really get to the heart, and the heart is Jesus Christ in our life. <laughs> and you mentioned during the break that uh, we have ways of rationalizing sin. Oh, all the time. All the time. Uh, that was a mistake. No, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was a sin. Right. Oh, that was an accident. Right. I didn't intend it. Yes, you did. Right. And that's sin. That's what I said about self-help. When you, when you look on television now, everybody has a guru that's trying to explain how you should live your, how, your life in a healthy way. Well, the truth of the matter is, I'm not, just gu- I'm not just guilty of mistakes. I'm guilty of sin, deliberate, conscious breaking of God's commandments in a circumstance where I did not have to do that. So just call a spade a spade. But as religious people, because we have all the jargon, all the lingo, all the stuff, you know, we could talk ourselves into a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, look at the time of Jesus. The Pharisees, Sadducees, we're going to hear more and more of them in the scriptures. And if you read them on a superficial level, you would think these people were just awful. But the truth is, they were devout. And they loved the Lord. And they absorbed, they observed the Torah. And they were charitable. And they, and, and they followed that which they were taught to do. But they became self-righteous in many ways which in my mind means that I'm in charge, not God. To your point, that I'm earning my way in, that I'm going to, if I do everything correct, God owes me. He doesn't owe you a blessed thing. Okay, so let's get that straight. But I'm gonna earn it. So when God chose to surprise, it didn't fit the rules. And so they could not see. So this is my question to you. If we were not Christian, and observing another faith. If the Messiah were to come in our own age, who would see, who would recognize him? Who would follow him to the cross? Who in this world would say, oh yeah, there's the Messiah hanging on the cross, being broken, bruised, and dying? Who would do that? So my point being, we could throw stones at the Pharisees and Sadducees 2,000 years ago, but we shouldn't because they were stuck in a self-righteousness that was really powered by rationalization that many times you and I and lots of our listeners can fall into unbeknownst to us. Yeah. So let's, maybe we should end this segment on a positive note. David said that God desires a sacrifice of the heart, Mm -hmm. right? And we know that Paul wrote, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Mm -hmm. So how do we... How do we stay on the road? How do we bring ourselves closer to where we need to be? Confession, obviously, we spoke about. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, his word, his sacraments, and and train our eyes to see him where no one else sees him. In the quiet of the merit, for example, as I described before, or in the ability to just smile to someone six feet away from you and give an assurance that you have a sense of what they're going through. Christ is present there. In many ways, um, we could make this the minimum under which you should not slip. But Christian life is meant to be the fullness of life. 
and ultimately lead us to the ultimate eternal fullness of life in heaven. So, to your point, positive. Let's look forward to where where can we where can you and I be surprised by Christ today? Let's look for him. And that will strengthen us on the road to eternal life. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Time for one more break. When we come back, we'll answer some questions. A lot of people listen to Catholic radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic radio is so important. Okay, Your Excellency, let's, uh, let's get to some listener questions. Yes, absolutely. Let's start here. Andrew wrote in, what are some practical ways to make parishes more active and vibrant as communities? It's a tremendous question that I think we have been struggling with for a number of years to figure out how, how it could be more inviting a community or welcoming or, or nourishing in word and sacrament. But the truth is, um, now that we are in the midst where our communities cannot come together, we have, as we said, a golden opportunity for us to go back to the beginning and perhaps say, how are we going to reassemble the community and can we learn from that how to keep it assembled? So we're in a unique moment. We are not maintaining and strengthening a community. The communities in the diaspora, it's scattered. We have to call it back the convoking that's what the church is. It's the convoking of God's people together. So maybe we could alter the question and say, what are the ways we can effectively bring God's people back into community? And I think technology and outreach personally and literally almost door to door to let people know we're open could be the very ways that we bring the community back after the crisis subsides and keep it there. That's that, that way of finally breaking out of, they come to us, no, we're going to go to you. We'll have to see. We could talk about that. Yeah. The door-to-door is, is an interesting idea. When I was 23, I did door-to-door missionary work for the Catholic Church. Did you? And uh, we went to every door within the parish boundaries, and it was amazing. Oh, I can imagine. So you should tell some of those stories. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll, we'll get to that in a future episode then. Let's see. Uh, we have here a question from John. John would like to know, how can I deepen my relationship with the saints? Again, it is something that every Christian should strive to do. But this period of time can actually afford us a tool that normally we would not have. And that is the time to find some excellent movie presentation of the lives of the saints. Why do I say that? When I went to the Holy Land and saw, visited, sat, stood in the places where Jesus walked, fed, had miracles, and of course died and rose, offered his body and blood, I have not ever since again read the scriptures the same way. So the saints are our spiritual guides, and we can read them, and the use of imagination, we can picture it. But when I watched The Man for All Seasons, 
that is one of one of my favorite movies because it depicts the life of a tremendous saint in a way that's real to me. And since we're in an image pictorial world, then there are so many movies out there. Start with Paul Apostle of Christ, recent movie. To be able to, to put almost flesh and blood and color and voice and texture to the life of a man, or in this case, two men, Luke and Paul, they're extraordinary. I think that may help deepen that love because now it's much more of an affective, imaginative communion with a man who, who literally will jump off the sacred page and have a face. Yeah, you're engaging more of the senses. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we have the time now to do it. That's right. You don't have to watch The Walking Dead. Oh, please, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy on our souls. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, make sure you send in your questions for Bishop Frank uh, via social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you to the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven. Listeners who are looking for some quality Catholic content on the web or social media, it's a great time right now to huddle up with your families and take a look. Type in KOFC Museum and give it a like or follow. Go to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to find Bishop Frank Caggiano and also Veritas Catholic Network. Thank you so much, Your Excellency. Thank you, Steve. I look forward to our next conversation. Definitely. Before we go, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We ask, O Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit upon all who are listening to us this day, that you keep them close to you, that you grant them the mantle of your love as their protection, that you calm their hearts if they are fearful or anxious. And we ask that you bless all those who are suffering in our midst, grant them recovery, grant them renewed life. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come upon us and remain with us forever. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Stay safe out there. Thank you.